Welcome to On The Continent, your one-stop shop for all things to do with European football. I'm Dotson Adibayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm David Carlich. No, je ne regrette rien. Pochettino says he's not going to change a thing in the second leg of the Champions League semi-final after PSG lose the first leg to Man City. Should he regret something? And if you think Paris has got problems getting to the final, Madrid have made it difficult for themselves against Chelsea. Is an all-out Premier League final a realistic prospect for the second time in three years? And oh, how far the mighty Girondin of Bordeaux have fallen. What's it going to take to get them, one of the vintage teams in French football, back up again where they belong? Gentlemen, obviously, we're getting to the business end of the Champions League now. Uh, two cracking first leg matches, I thought, in any case. Uh, Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. And it just shows you what the Champions League can do. After all the uh, preamble, the nonsense about Super League being the place to be, actually, we've got the right four finalists, I would have thought. Oh, sorry, the right four semi-finalists, I would have thought, after this first leg performance. David? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think if you you do look at it, um, both games, um, especially PSG City, the the quality was extremely high. I thought, and the energy energy level of both teams was was fantastic. Um, I think a lot of high level football in the Champions League this season has been hindered by the fact that the players are playing a lot of games. Um, they have so much responsibility in terms of international duty, and then going back to play in the league as well. But I think it didn't seem to impact either game uh, this week. But even this, David, I mean, I enjoyed them both. I thought they were really great, high-quality matches. But I, I don't know, if we, like, say, hone in on um, the game in Paris first, for example, yeah. it was almost quite typical of the sort of football we've had over the last year from a Paris perspective, because that first half was perfect. Perfect. I mean... It was, in terms of a home performance from Paris Saint-Germain, you're talking about, and it never gets talked about because of the 6-1 in the return, it was quite close to the sort of level of performance they had without the ball when they beat Barcelona 4-0 in Paris in 2017, going, going back to that. The second half, it was like a different team, yeah. wasn't it? It was a and bomb. Like, yeah. like Manchester City up their level, no, no doubt about that, and that, they had a very good second half. PSG lost everything that was good about them in that first half. And that's been something that the French press have been trying, I think with quite a bit of difficulty to decode on, on Thursday morning, because I think the plan was absolutely perfect. And Pochettino's finger fingerprints are all over it in the first half. And I, I, I said at halftime, like whatever happens from here, and I wasn't expecting a second half quite like that, but whatever happens from here, I think you have to give Pochettino an enormous amount of credit because the sort of performances he's managed to get out of a team that's not really his team, that he hardly knows, in a Champions League context, which is the context that matters the most in Paris, is unbelievable. If you look at the fact that they've played like big dogs all the way. So in the knockouts, you've had Barcelona, you've then had Bayern, and now you've got Manchester City. Um, the, the quality of the performances, and I know they got to the final last year, albeit that they benefited from a clement draw and a truncated format. 
like the performances of Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League knockouts this season have, until that second half have been on a completely different level. I just wonder in that second half was there a sense because it didn't really feel like there was much that Pochettino could change. Could do, it, yeah. He almost had to let it play out. I mean, there was criticism in France of him not making subs and stuff like that. I don't really know what more he could have done. Is is this the point where you think, actually, the squad is not quite what it needs to be in that second half? I think so. I think it looked very lopsided in the second half. I think they needed something. They needed someone to come in. Somebody would, you know, potentially say, oh, at least PSG around the 60, 70th minute mark, they can bring somebody in to try and change the course of this game. They didn't really have that. I think what they had to score another goal in that incredible first half that they had. Well, yeah. enough, I think it was the same for Chelsea the other night with Tuchel. He it was in that same position. I think he also looked out and saw, oh, what more can I actually do here? We didn't take our chances. We had that unbelievable spell. How do, how do you top that? How do you change that? No, it in just, his case, it's too much choice rather than not, <laughs> yeah, not enough though, yeah. isn't it? It simply comes down to, look, if my players aren't going to take the chances, we've created the chances, but if they aren't going to take them, there's not a lot tactically I can therefore do um, I think that onus is then on the opposition manager of the trailing team and I thought Pep got it perfectly I thought he did too I thought he yeah, did yeah. I was going to say what Pochettino seems to be referring to as to what happened in that second half was fitness he seemed to be saying that you know they just didn't have the energy to complete the project as it were they weren't as good in the second half as first half because they ran out of steam that seems to be what he's saying but that, I think, is a fundamental issue for a coach, isn't it? Because you either have to change the way you play or, you know, bring back yeah. the intensity of the game. But he says he's not going to change anything. That doesn't make sense to me. If you lose a first leg, you've got to change something. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think maybe what he's getting at, and I'm presuming a little bit here, but they, they shouldn't throw away everything that went so right for them in the first half. And what they did so well in the first half is I thought, Leandro Paredes in particular, we've talked a lot about PSG having a lot of the same type of midfielder. He's a little bit different because he can pass the ball and he can pass the ball over range. And what he in particular did very well was to hit the space that you're going to find behind those Manchester City fullbacks. And really... PSG's fullbacks are always going to be better on the front foot than they are on the back foot. And yeah. I think that's maybe part of the reason why they picked, say, Mitchell Backer ahead of Abdou Diallo, who is like the best defensive left back because he's not really a left back, because he's a centre back mm-hmm. who's 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 left footed. Um so it's clear that they're aiming to take advantage of that and not just through um Neymar and, and Mbappe. But they simply weren't able to get the ball out in the second half at all, were they? No, absolutely not. I think City then pressed their up a lot higher. I think they De Bruyne, I think the key two key changes for me, they removed De Bruyne from kind of the advanced sort of, you know, false nine role. They moved him a little bit deeper, so he started to initiate attacks. He joined the midfield. Mm. Foden also went inside as well and started playing a bit more centrally. But the most importantly, I didn't think he would be the man to decide this game. When you speak about fullbacks, I thought Zinchenko um, was incredible when he came on. He made a huge difference, didn't he? Absolutely. He, was, he generally does that for yeah, Manchester City. Yes, he generally he's, does. He's a very, I think, solid, defendable player. He'll give you seven, eight out of ten. Yes, he's had his flaws, his errors in the past, but he was excellent both defensively. But tactically, he gets it as well, yeah, doesn't he? Yeah. He can carry out exactly what the manager wants him yeah, to do. He, he never got caught too far up, yet he did support the attack still. 
his, his movement, of course, he's left-footed. He, his crossing was a bit more natural than Cancelo, having to check back, of course, all the time. Defensively, he was excellent. There was a big slide tackle from Zinchenko. I think it was in injury time. Mm. And he was just there again, just on the edge of his own area. And it, it relieved all the pressure. And he did that brilliantly. Mm. You see, the the tactics that you talk about should really be at the heart of the second leg as well now. But when you put when you pitch Pep's tactics from the first game, remember the first half, he couldn't do much about it. Mm. But in the second half, there was some kind of a Pep talk in the dressing room, I thought, at half time, and he changed his tactics. Is that likely to be the deciding factor on who gets through to the final? Pep's tactics versus Pochettino's tactics? I, d- I don't think it necessarily needs to be because I think, I mean, Kate pointed out on the ramble earlier that um, the last. Uh, Champions League coach to come back in a semi-final from a first leg home loss Pochettino <laughs> Spurs at Ajax of, of, of course and I think there's something in that simply because Paris have been better away than they have at an empty Parc de France for for, for, the, for this whole Champions mm. League run and I think we can sometimes underrate that because we think of Paris Saint-Germain particularly Paris Saint-Germain in the modern era as um, money and superstars, we don't think about like what a big occasion, a big Champions League occasion is like at the Parc des Princes. It's absolutely huge. That is where they genuinely have got a heritage. When you go back to the, the 90s, when you go back to Comboare and Le Guin and Weyer and Rai and Ginola and, and, and players like that, you, you know, that was what made... Paris Saint-Germain respected at home before we even get to to, to, to continentally. And that's what got them to <clears throat> finals and, and, and semi-finals in, in European competition. So I think when you go back to last year, the match that was the gateway to them shaking off that beast of Champions League failure was the second leg against Dortmund that they won, which was the first game that they played behind closed doors and certainly the first game in Europe that they played behind closed doors because then they could divorce themselves from the sense of occasion and they could just concentrate on getting the football bit right. And they did that very well. It was a very controlled performance, not like a lot of the knockout performances we'd seen from Paris Saint-Germain. And it was a huge boost for them and it was a huge feather in the cap of, of, of Tuchel. But now you've got past that they away from home and particularly I think because they, they can't rely on their midfield to conjure anything special. So more of the load and more accordingly of the counter-attacking load falls on Neymar and Mbappe. On the road, that, that's that's easier to express. You look at the goals they scored at Camp Nou. You look at the goals they scored at Allianz Arena. I don't want to just whittle them down to being a Mm counter-attacking team. I think it's a a little bit more than that. They are more than that, but obviously their strengths do lie in those breakaways with the speed that they have. Mm. Mbappe just didn't get in the game last night. First time in his Champions League career that he did not have a single shot on target during the game. That's mad, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I tend to think that one of the big things for Pochettino has been... And he did it in his very first game that he coached with Paris Saint-Germain against Saint-Étienne. Is he thought, right, well, I've got a lot of midfielders who are the same. So Marco Verratti is going to play number 10 for me because he can make that last pass. I'll push him that a little bit further forward. And then tonight, uh, last night, sorry, to get, 
I, I, I presume the idea is to get Neymar and Mbappe a little bit closer together. And, you know, I, I can understand the logic of that, getting your two most creative players closer together. And Neymar was brilliant in that yeah. first half. Uh, um, he was lucky to finish the game because he was really losing his shit in the second, <laughs> very much like the, the, the rest of his teammates. But Verratti is kind of a casualty of that because he ends up sort of playing in this like almost wide left Matuidi role what can Verratti really do from there? I mean, he's adapted very well to this change in position, this kind of reverse Pirlo of being changed from a player who makes stuff happen in front of the defence to a number 10. He's, he's done that brilliantly for Pochettino. But then you shove him out left and it's like, well, he's he's, he's not Matuidi. He's, he's not Matuidi for France. So how can he really affect the game there? And I think it really limited how he did affect the game. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, you, you touched on, in a way, the discipline issues with PSG second half of the you know once you start seeing the moment I think whenever you see PSG play watch Neymar watch the mood that he's in because I think it affects the rest of the team mood is the right word isn't it yeah and you you notice that it was going to it wasn't they weren't going to lift themselves up once Neymar's got the hump about something and I just think it affected the whole team. It, it permeates throughout the whole team. I'm, I'm being unfair on Neymar because brilliant footballer and everything like that. But you just think, well, even though you're struggling, you are certainly the leader of the team, I'd have thought here. Yeah. And you, how you approach this game is going to affect everybody else. And I think it did. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you do start letting those emotions run riot, especially when you're in that situation, and, and you made a great point about their previous performances, they were so controlled and professional last year when they when they really broke through in that sense. But it does, that sort of attitude, that mentality does fester on the field, filters across to other players. Funnily enough, Arsene Wenger brought it up last night. I noticed on uh, TV, he was... Uh, he really, he mentioned it. He actually said the he said he said the mental aspect of the team. He said you could see at one one, PSG's players suddenly just they were like ghosts. They something hit them mentally, and after that they were completely gone. And he, and he said, "Oh, I, I knew then that City were potentially going to." I felt like the manner of the goal kind of knocked the stuffing out of yeah, them a little bit, yeah. didn't it? And 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 you need to be of a special sort of character to concede a goal like that and then respond and build yourself up again. It's very, very hard. I think it's one of the hardest things in football to do to completely change your mentality around again and build yourselves back up and say, oh, and forget those wasted chances. Forget the fact that the team has potentially, the opposition's got a lucky goal, if you want to call it that. You have to build yourself back up and say, right, we need to control this game again. Let's do what we did in the first 30 minutes. But I don't think they had the character to do so. And also what we've discussed, I don't think they had the energy. And they didn't express themselves either. I'm sorry, but, you know, if this second leg is going to be going to go PSG's way, they have to play like the PSG group of players that they have now, not like uh, this individual, that individual and so on. And Manchester City have the absolutely different attitude to these games, you know. Um, it's, it's weird, isn't it? For a, for a club that's so moneyed and so famous for being moneyed, it doesn't really feel like they're a superstars. Does it? No. You know, PSG it, or Manchester, Manchester City? City. Yeah, sure, it feels sure. as if it's the ultimate equilibrium. Yeah, Perhaps yeah. too much to a fault because you know I've heard it said on, on, on the Ramble and elsewhere that you know if 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 they've got a proper in inverted common centre forward, you know City put that game away on the night. Having said that, I think there is maybe maybe even a case for starting Icardi in the second leg. 
Now, I know he's kind of become not exactly persona non grata, but marginalised um, uh, uh, in Paris. And there's been plenty of talk about where he'll go next season. Um, clearly, part of his status in Paris as it's developed is because of what went before him. Because Edinson Cavani gives you so much off the ball. And Icardi is the absolute polar opposite of that. Yeah. If he's not scoring, he's a chocolate teapot. Yeah, I like it. And 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 the the the, the thing is though, so much is made last night of, um, you know, if if only City had this player who would gamble, who would throw himself in the six yard box. The only really good chance that um, Paris Saint Germain have of note in the second half is where Mbappe engineers a bit of space down the right hand side, in an opportunity in a, in a situation where he has really no right to engineer any space. Fizzes it across the box. There's no one there to put it in. That's the Akadi zone. Shocking. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's funny. Shocking, it's, it? it's, it's funny, isn't it, that everyone talks about that as being the Man- Manchester City issue. But whereas Paris Saint Germain, I, I know, like people want to make Kylian Mbappe into that kind of striker, but he is someone who really thrives in the wide areas, and he can create as well. You know, if you go back to his first really big Champions League game since arriving in Paris, it's that 3-0 win against Bayern in the group stage that finishes off Carlo Ancelotti mm-hmm. um, at, at Bayern. And in that game, Mbappe doesn't score, but he's the best player on the pitch because mm-hmm. already he can create so much. Yeah. So he's not just the finisher and we shouldn't try to make him that. He enjoys running. He enjoys outrunning all the other players, you know. He enjoys outrunning a defender. Why would you rein that in? You need that. You no. need the pace. You know, he gives PSG so much pace. They become a different team. You take him out of it and you think, oh, they're a little bit kind of laboured in their movement. Yeah, it is, it is this a funny obsession with trying to like, sort of force him to become a reference point centre forward. I, I, I'm, I'm not really sure that's the thing. It, you know, it's, it's almost like kind of an ego thing, really. It's a bit like, I'm not saying it's necessarily his ego, mm. but, you know, like this idea that, um, you know, David Beckham to reach footballing Nirvana had to play centre midfield. Yeah. It's like, well, you're the best wide midfielder in the world. Yeah, why didn't you in, in terms of your passing, what, why why wouldn't you just capitalise on that? Yeah, 100%. it is one of the best things about Mbappe and he doesn't have to be Lewandowski. He can no, just be Mbappe. No, so. exactly. Lewandowski is not trying to be Mbappe, so why? Precisely. Um, who's going to win the next, uh, well, not the next leg, but the two fixtures? Who's going to win? Who's going to make it through into the finals from what you've seen? I, I think that Paris Saint-Germain can do it. The, the, the second half and the way that Paris emotionally managed that or didn't manage it makes me think that Manchester City will do it. You see, I, I tend to agree with Andy, but more because I can't see Pep Guardiola. I don't know if he's ever come from a position like he has now, which is really an advantageous position, semi-final of the Champions League. I cannot see him losing that. How about you, David? I think it's going to be a Real Madrid City final. Um, I think the storyline's really good for it as well, because Real Madrid have had such dominance over the Champions League for so many years. And it's kind of like, does that, does that generation that they have have one last hurrah in them or do they give it up to this team who have been desperately trying to break through in the Champions League um, and I think I think City win the whole thing Although the Chelsea have got the advantage against Real Madrid at the moment Indeed they have I'd, I'd, I'd prefer uh, an all-English final actually um, but I just think Real Madrid they just no matter how bad they are no matter who's missing they always <laughs> just get that little bit of luck or they just carve out the result 
Griezmann sur l'appui, c'était bien joué avec Giroud. Oh, Dan, Dan. oh Silvois, il l'a vu oui. Kylian Mbappé ouais Kylian Mbappé, il l'a vu Ça fait 4 et ça fait peut-être un quart de finale pour l'équipe de France, 68e minute Talking of Real Madrid and their performance against uh, Chelsea, uh, it's not all down to any one player, but there are a few players that we you can say it is. Out. If you is want, it, you, you can say it is. Okay, then. Which player is that? You tell me. Look, we have to have a look at Karen Benzema this week because um, it, it seems ridiculous to talk about someone who's been at the top of European football for such a long time as underrated. Only 33? He is still a little bit low, isn't he? Yeah. It is, it's, it's remarkable. And um, you know, think of that goal, which not many players, and especially not many players of his kind of craft and vision can score. You know, the, 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 the alliance of like craft and brutality in that was just magnificent. And at that point, Real Madrid are going nowhere in the game. You, you know, they, they are sleepwalking to loss. Chelsea, the better team by a mile, particularly in the first half. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's one of those sort of complete misunderstandings of Real Madrid. The fact that, well, it's Zidane and it's Real Madrid. Look at their individuality. Look at their history. So the union must be, and it's not. The set pieces are super important to them. And that's why they kept Tony Kroos on ice for a couple of weeks beforehand. They just said, don't train, don't play, just go to the gym, just tick over because we need you for this. And we need you not because of actually the way you drop deep against the Liverpool team that wouldn't press you and, you know, spread the ball about from there, but because set pieces are super important to us and you can deliver them better than anyone else. Now, of course, that was a bit of a second ball situation, but that Real Madrid found a way kind of almost indirectly through a through a set piece is no surprise but I think that's that's the thing there are so many misunderstandings of Benzema as, as, as well who marked him out before he marked himself out before he came to Real Madrid at Lyon as a certain type of striker a striker who really could do stuff that not a lot of other centre forwards can do to have someone who's six foot two but can is not only a great finisher, but can drop into spaces, um, can link play, can find passes, who's got a really incredibly natural feel for the game. And of course, that made him famous in Cristiano Ronaldo era Real Madrid because, you know, he's he was so important for the way that Ronaldo played that essentially Juventus this summer thought, right, we can't actually get Benzema. Who can we get who can do a Benzema job for Ronaldo here. And they come up with Alvaro Morata, who's, you know, done an all right job of it, in, in all fairness. But then we have this idea that this is the player that Benzema is forever. And the reason, or one of the reasons, he's stepped up a level higher to replace Cristiano Ronaldo is this talisman. And of course, you can never completely replace Cristiano Ronaldo, is because of how he's changed his game how he's changed his body shape, how he's an absolute monster in the air. I, I can't remember him scoring a header for, for, for Leon if we go all the way back, or really in his first couple of seasons at, at Real Madrid. But now he's physically fierce as well. You look at him training, he looks like a boxer. Yep. You know, there's, there's a whole different side to him. He is now, and I've got this in my notes, but I'm underlined, he is now the complete striker. He does absolutely everything. He can do anything. 
I think people, the criticism they used to have of him in the Ronaldo Real Madrid era was that, oh, he's not a natural goal scorer. He isn't a nine. He isn't somebody who will be in the penalty area prowling. Um, you know, it's just not his game. He Should likes... he be though? Should he be to be the complete striker? I think he is now that and he's shown it this season as well that he is capable of that. I think he's, I think for the past few years he's answered those questions about his game and, and what he's capable of and he's come full circle now. We've said he's a little bit older now and um, of course he, he he's in that much of a level physically as you've brought up. He can still drive in from wide areas. He can mm. still do those wonderful slalom runs that he has but also he can do what he did last night and it was funny that finish just really, really reminded me of Raul when he was at Real Madrid. He always used to get those goals exactly like that. The little bit of technique but also that brutality. And funnily enough, he equaled Raul last night in the Champions League, 71 goals, both of them. And I think if you'd said that to Real Madrid, and obviously Raul didn't score all those Real Madrid, he had a fantastic renaissance at Schalke, of course. Um, but if you look at it, a few years ago, when Higuain was still at Real Madrid, there was a big debate, who do they move on? Higuain or Benzema? If you'd said anybody in Madrid then, or he's going to equal Raul one day in the Champions League, you would have been laughed out of Madrid. That's a remarkable conversation in retrospect, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that absolutely remarkable? It's staggering, isn't it? And, yeah. and, and a lot of the people preferred Higuain because they felt he gave more on the field. They felt mm. he was more aggressive, more tenacious. He had that South American kind of edge to him, whereas Benzema was just sloping about. He was the, a party boy. He was and this and that. And it's 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 funny, and he did look like that. And there was also the famous Mourinho diatribe about uh, calling him a cat. Yeah, 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 which was really famous. And 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 then it it did look. Oh God, Benzema, that's it. Where's he going to go? He might go to the Premier League. He might go to Serie A. Um, it did look over for him, but he's had this incredible post thirties um, glow up. It does go to show, doesn't it, Don? How much body language affects our perception of a player, like that idea of. Iguain, the fact that he seems to like lose a stone during a game, you know, the fact that he, you know, sweats every sinew. And then with, with Benzema, this, I, I guess, part of it is because he's a French footballer. And it's a cliche, but I think a lot of people do see it like that. The sense that he's a little bit insouciant and yeah. a, a, a little bit, you know, well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be brilliant when yeah, I want to yeah, be that brilliant. That is perception, yeah. isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but it is perception. <laughs> and so, something that he's, never entirely shut down really I think certainly in his early years because he didn't have he didn't have the words he didn't have um, I guess the, the, um, he wasn't articulate enough to, to, to be able to do that and he wasn't aware enough to be able to do that I think he just literally thought I'll just turn up and play and everything else will yeah, yeah. Will, will take care of itself which is never enough at Real Madrid you know that is, things, are, things are never going to work like that but you know I, th- I think back to his the, the, his early descriptions of himself at Real Madrid. The two things that stuck with me is like, firstly, you talked about Mourinho and um, uh, you know how Mourinho used to talk about him and get quite frustrated. He used that. to slander so, him so Well, the, <laughs> he, he said that the only thing that Mourinho he said in an interview in France, the only thing that Mourinho ever said to me in the the, the first year at, at, at Real Madrid was "bouge ton cool." move your ass in, in, in training that's all he ever said to me and at first he was like oh he speaks French and then he's like oh actually the, 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 the other the other thing as well and when we talk about what 
Benzema has become and allying those two parts of what a centre forward can be and and maybe should be is the fact that his idol has always been Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo, and he's always been open about that. And when he did, his, I can see that in his play. Actually, you, you I can, can see totally. Once you, yeah. once you make that comparison, you, you can totally. And I think the the, the thing the thing that really really struck me is he was so much of a, a, a hero for him in his exit interview from from Leon, which of course is hometown club and he had a great relationship with um, and he obviously felt very relaxed and at home giving this interview just before he flew off to join Real Madrid so this was like summer 2009 I guess it is it was the same summer when it was the second coming of Florentino Perez so he brought in Benzema who's always been his guy by the way uh, Kaká and Cristiano Ronaldo all in the same summer. Now I think we look at like European football and we look at the world and like global finance now and think that is just totally impossible. But that they asked him in this, uh, they asked Benzema in this um, exit interview with Real Madrid uh, with um, Leon. They said, um, "So you must be uh, really excited about playing with Ronaldo," and he said, "Yeah, I mean." You know, it'd be nice to play with the real Ronaldo. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what a way to ingratiate yourself with your new teammates. He's, he's a cat. He's got nine lives. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, and yet, with his amazing play, with his awareness, with his altruism, like if you ask Cristiano Ronaldo, who's your favourite strike partner of all time now, he'd say Benzema before you got yeah. to the end of the sentence. Are you saying that Benzema gave Cristiano Ronaldo a career? <laughs> that's the Is strap that line that's the strap line <laughs> so why, why then even now when you, you see what a difference a Benzema makes to Real Madrid in a semi-final of a Champions League why doesn't he get the praise because you could imagine uh, I mean if it was Modric he'd be getting the praise all over the place and say oh wow he won this he won this uh, leg for us or otherwise why doesn't Benzema get the praise then I mean I, I got what you said about the the attitude, it's a kind of a Mesut Ozil thing that, you know, look at the, his gait on the pitch and then you misunderstand what he can do for you. And there is the stuff off the pitch as well. There is the other stuff. And of course, as, yeah. recently, as, as recently as this season, he's... Um, He's, he's, he's been caught slating one of his teammates in the, in, in the tunnel, hasn't he? Oh, the, yeah, of course. With, Vin- with Vinicius. Yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, I don't think he gives the slightest shit about the, the, the perception of him. Anymore. I don't think he does. And and look, I've followed Spanish football the whole time while he's there. I don't really know a lot about him. I don't think a lot of people in Madrid know a lot about him. Mm. He, he's been very cut off in that sense. I think people don't respond well to that as well. I think they'll look at that and say, oh, I don't really know this guy, so I, I can't really comment on him. So you almost have a, a disinterest or a dislike of him almost. Um, and I think that hasn't helped. And I just think there's a stigma as well. I don't think people have probably watched him close enough the last few years in, in terms of what he's become. People become very lazy with their analysis when they won't watch a player every single week, see what they develop into, see what they do. I know people... But you have a preset idea of that player. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I always had it when a lot of the time people used to say to me about... Um, Ever Benega as well, which is another one. People who say, oh, he's just a lazy guy. He's not really done much with his career. He could have been so much more. And I'm like, have you not watched him over the past few years? He's literally been the best midfielder in Spain. Mm. Um, it's funny how people <laughs> see football differently, you know, or see the performances differently. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, if you watch what, why, I always start off from the point of view of, look, there's a reason for him to be in this squad. There's no way that, you know, whether it's Benzema or anybody else can be in this level of a squad without having some significant contribution to it. Yeah. So, but 
if you watch as a spectator, especially when you're watching the stadium, you're just thinking, hang on, why is he sloping along? Now's the time to run or whatever it might be. But, but and that, that, I think that... It pressures players, doesn't it? it because it does. players realise because they can hear the spectators on their back. But I think you're totally right. In, in terms of the public perception of Benzema and taking it to off the field, it is a bit of a two-way street. And I, I think it starts when... Exactly, as I said before, when he's relatively young and naive and where he just thinks that the football will take care of anything. He was so incredibly natural when he was in France. Like when he went to um, the Players the, the players Union Player of the Year for the first time, for example, he took a rapper, uh, Hoff, with him. And it, it wasn't him saying, look at me. It's just, oh, it's my mate. He'll be, be my plus one. That, that'll be fine. And, 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 and people, what did his missus have to say about that? People, people were a little, but people were a little bit, all oh, right, okay, okay. Oh, well, maybe maybe he's a bit too street. Maybe we should treat him with, with, with suspicion. And I think when he first arrived in Madrid, I think... He's living away from home for the first time. He's, he's lived with his mum and his, his mum and his dad and his sisters up until that point in the estate that he grew up in, even when he was smashing and was that in Leon? Champions League goals for Leon. Because he got this streetwise yeah. in Leon. Yeah, this is, this is out. He uh, grew up in Bron, which is out near the airport. Mm. And um, so he moves to Madrid and he's, you know, just out of his teenage years. He's cost a lot of money. He doesn't speak any Spanish. He hasn't really got any ability to culturally adapt because he's apart from football's the only place that's taken him off his estate before and people expect him to be a fully formed grown-up really mm. and and that's quite difficult and of course the sort of criticism he gets from that because the first season at Real Madrid it wasn't disastrous but it wasn't good it was bad enough that he didn't get picked for the World Cup squad in 2010 at the end of his first season, which turned out to be an absolute godsend because that was a car crash that you didn't want to be involved with. And obviously his international career didn't develop quite as as, as he'd hoped. But I think, you know, it, when, when you get people criticising not just his football, but his way of being, I think that's that's quite difficult to personally take. And that is just really going to exacerbate it and make him be more closed. I think, funnily enough, as he's become more comfortable in his own skin, he's also seen the commercial value of, well, you know, if I smile every so often, maybe I can sell watches. Maybe (laughs) I can sell cars. And, you know, you never would have seen him as that guy who would have made loads of commercial deals, like going going later down the line. But that's what he has become. I mean, you remember that... um, Someone on the internet did that, um, uh, the Feliz Navidad song, but they did uh, Karim, Karim Benzema. (laughs) And it was was him in a Christmas jumper in his Real Madrid kit, all photoshopped together, built around the fact that he never smiles. Will he make the difference? Will he put a smile uh, on the faces of uh, his teammates and Zinedine Zidane in the next leg of this match against Chelsea will he make the difference I think he's going to be the most important factor for, you reckon? for Real Madrid yeah yeah, I really do I think he always is I think he's the reference point now it's largely why he's developing the way that he has Ronaldo's left and he's become the reference point he's now mature enough as a footballer um, and a person as well I believe um, to, to handle responsibility and he's been incredible with that but I think most of all I'm looking forward to the season being over and when Benzema goes on holiday he shoots all of his video there, he gets his mates to record while he's there. Think P. Diddy, 
90s when he went solo <laughs> that type of production level <laughs> well I think after you've won a certain amount of Champions League you probably can get away with writhing in a bath full of money oh, absolutely limpiando todo Tony Cross va corriendo Valverde se desata Valverde abierto Lucas Vázquez no llegará Busquets habrá centro Lucas Vázquez irremediable centro para Benzema Let's stay with a French connection because I was gobsmacked, to be frank with you, Andy, that Bordeaux, which is a team that I associate with the European Cup, um, you know, a certain, not necessarily because they've done well in it, but it's from those days before the European Cup became the Champions League. You've got a team like Bordeaux, we're always quite a powerhouse in, yeah. French, in the French League, and suddenly. Uh, they've been put into administration. How on earth did that happen? Well, firstly, I'd like to congratulate you through getting through the bit about their history without saying the word vintage. I think oh, you, did, vintage. You, did, you, did, you did very well there. I, I couldn't come up with the word. I was looking for it. I was searching for it, but thank you. Uh, and I mean, it's it's taken a long time to get here, but it's it's been coming for a while. So basically what, what happened is... Um, you know, things seem to move so fast in football at the, at the at the moment with so much happening. It was only a week ago that they were um, put under the supervision. The club were put under the supervision of uh, a com- commercial court in France, which is the equivalent of administration. You get um, people come in to look after the club after uh, King Street, the US hedge fund that owns Bordeaux and has done for a couple of years now, um, said that they won't be funding the club um, either now or, or, or going forward which has implications. Um, the president, Frederick Longepi, has said um, to the players, well, look, you know, you, you no problem getting your wages for the end of the se- until the end of the season. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the um, boost that they needed um, because it's, it's, it's clear that there's, there's been a degree of unrest around um, Longepi, who's very unpopular, seen as the representative of King Street and the owners themselves for a, for a very long time because I, I remember um, we had Palo Sosa on uh, Ramble Meets like probably a year and a half, two years ago now. And him saying at the time, you know, he'd, he'd done lots of positive work for the team and he was just looking for just not a fortune, but a little bit of investment to help them be able to push towards the European places. And it never came. And... um you know, I think for Bordeaux supporters, clearly now where they're at is it's it's about the very existence of of, of the club because if if you're not going to get funded anymore, um, you, you know the, the the French financial control board, the DNCG um, for for the league, they they're very strict and they've reminded clubs of their responsibilities rather than said we're going to cut you some slack because of COVID. They're like you've 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 still got a make weight you've still got to show us at the start of this uh, the start of next season that you've got the money to complete the season because i mean to show how strict they are if you go back to 2003-2004 just as, as an example the season that monaco got to the champions league final with that great team under didier deschamps they had well, julie rotten they had morientes on loan that Perso, um Edouard Cissé Placiel, who's actually on the staff at Bordeaux now, all those sort of players. At the start of that season, they were relegated. 
um, administratively because they couldn't convince the DNCG that they had the money to see themselves through the season. Well, this is Monaco. Yeah, and in the end, um, the Monegasque royal family had to step in, as they often do, and, 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 and sort that out. And that's the only reason that they got to the brink of winning the title and to the Champions League final against Mourinho's Porto that season. Um, with Bordeaux, they've got to sort this out, and they've got to sort this out really, really quickly. Because otherwise, you're looking at the threat of bankruptcy. You're looking at the, the, the um, liquidation. And I know, of course, because it's a hedge fund, a lot of people have looked at this and said, well, w- won't what will happen will be just like what happened at, at Milan or Lille when you've got um, debtors who inherit the club? And yes, there has been a lot of money borrowed off uh, Fortress, uh, an, another hedge fund. And People are thinking, well, it would just be like Elliot inheriting Milan or like debtors being prepared to inherit Lille. The big difference between Lille and Bordeaux is Lille have got a very high value playing staff. So if I'm a hedge fund thinking I'm going to inherit this club, I don't think I'm inheriting a load of debt. I think I'm inheriting a load of assets. Mm. Where are the assets in that Bordeaux team? There aren't. And I'm not just saying this because they got absolutely hammered at Lorient last weekend one of their now relegation rivals because Bordeaux are properly in it and they were absolutely shambolic in this game against Lorient there was just no heart no desire no quality no nothing they've sold most of the things worth having and so for example I think this is one of the frustrations for the supporters as well as the fact that this very proud club who were big in the 80s and then relatively recently under Laurent Blanc they broke Lyon's seven in a row title streak and winning the title in 2009 they got to the semi-finals of Champions League in, in 2010 which is, is is recent memory I think it's the fact that if you look at even building up from the bottom they could have had a decent team by now but you look at Jules Koundé sold to Sevilla yeah. who know their way around a deal I don't think there's any doubt about that with Monchi but within a year he's worth four times yeah. as much as what they sold him for. Yeah, so you'd hope, then, they've, hope they've maybe got like 20, 25% sell-on the, there. They won't have. <laughs> uh, and, and then you look at um, Aurelien Chouameni, uh, midfielder, who's having a brilliant time at, at, at Monaco. And these young players who could have been the heart of something, mm. you know, they've just been got rid of and the money's not been reinvested. And, and now, if I'm a hedge fund, I don't want Bordeaux because what am I inheriting? I'm inheriting a load of debt. I'm not inheriting... I can't even asset strip because there are no assets yeah. to strip. I don't think football is particularly appealing to even move into right now. Yeah. Even, if yeah. you, even if you do have assets, I don't think it's particularly good, especially with the whole TV deal situation in, in, in France as well. Well, it's not a seller's market for anyone, is it? Yeah. yeah. The transfer you market can't see a team, though, with the pedigree that Bordeaux has... Of folding entirely, can you, David? You know, there, there must be. It, it's like when you say certain teams are too good to go down to be relegated. They always get relegated. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't want to jinx it in that way. But can you see that heritage in football just disappearing? No, I don't think so. I think there's apparently already interest in in, in buying them, so people might, you know come through for them the mayor of the city's already said that he's had several because every offer has to go through him but what well. are they buying is a question that you yeah. posed a moment or two ago well that's the thing that, that with French they don't, they don't even own the ground <laughs> you know that that, yeah. that belongs to the local authority I mean what are you actually buying? I think that's a very good question what yeah. are you actually buying you're buying a heritage you're buying a dream you're buying an idea it's literally but, that I don't think there's much else. And, and don't get me wrong there is some incredible heritage there 
it would mm. have to be somebody who's potentially local to the area who has an affinity for the region who who looks upon it as that going oh man that's that's romantic almost looking at that I know it's not very uh, you know we're looking at it economically here it would have to be a bit of romanticism there I think involved yeah are you buying the footfall as well the level of supporters do they have much in that that uh, a potential buyer could say well at least we've got ten thousand supporters going there every single week or twenty thousand well, whatever it is I mean you saw really the reaction to this news and the protests that there were in the mm. centre of, of Bordeaux. But does that relate to numbers though, bums on seats? I think it can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, th- I think it really can do. I mean, obviously, if you're really going to fill the stadium, you need to at some point have a half decent team and produce some decent football. You know, that's that's important. But, you know, it is really important to um, the life and the heart of the city, which I think has been easy to forget. A, because Bordeaux's got a not entirely unjustified reputation for being quite bourgeois. Mm-hmm. And secondly... Um, because you know those those fans have been away from the stadium for a long time. Because you had a lot of those fans who met up for that protest, saying this felt amazing actually. Because even though it's a really low moment for our club, we got together like we haven't got together because we haven't been in the stadium for absolutely ages. And Jean Louis Gasset, who is the probably outgoing coach at the end of the season, who was the assistant to Laurent Blanc when they went and did those great things before, what he did before the Lorient game, and it didn't work instantly, obviously, is he called on his connects to bring down great players from that team, like Johan Gourcuff and um, uh, another great player from the past, Lillian Lalande, who had a short spell in England, and, and players like them to say, look, this is what Bordeaux is about. I want to remind you of this. I want to remind you of of, of what it's all about. And like galvanising them, mm. I think in the short term, as they try and get out of the the problems they've got at the bottom of the table, that's really important. And what does Girondin mean, anyway? It's, it's just from Gironde, the region. Oh, right, from the region. Thank you very much. Good wine in that region, out of interest? Um, yeah, pretty, Bordeaux, good, pretty, pretty good, I think. Not really my speciality anymore. No. <laughs> 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 yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> So lots of options for games of the week, but you've both chosen one that we can focus on this weekend. David, what's yours? Yeah, for me, it's uh, Monday night, Monday the 3rd of May, 8 o'clock. It's Sevilla versus Athletic Bilbao. Sevilla have kind of stumbled into a Liga title race um, through everybody else's kind of, you know, ineptitude, I think. and, and the consist- Champions! Champions. <laughs> champion. Champion. As as a as a Betico, I do not want that. So, <laughs> so, so we can stop that right away. Um, yes, uh, Sevilla have found themselves in a bit of a title race. They've won nine of their last ten home games. Um, they're looking very strong, very controlled. Um, they're winning a lot of games by only one goal margin, but they just seem so controlled. They know their player. There's a lot of clarity there. I think. I've said before on this show how highly I rate Lopetegui. Mm. I think he's done incredible work there. And they could spring a surprise because, you know, Real Madrid involved in the Champions League. Barcelona and Atletico don't look completely there as a, as a whole unit at the moment. They could take advantage. Um, and they face Athletic Bilbao, held by Marcelino right now. Mm. Um, and at the last night, uh, Wednesday evening, they gave a debut to Nico Williams. Mm. He is the brother of Anaki Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, they were on the pitch together at the same time. Um, it's just a, a remarkable story, I think, if you look at it. Um, the mother and father met in a Ghanaian refugee camp um, after the mother uh, fled the civil war in Liberia. Uh, they ended up uh, going via Malia um, to Pamplona, 
settled there, uh, found it very, very hard to work. So the father, Felix, he moved to London for work while the mother stayed um, and, and brought up the kids um, there in Pamplona. They eventually found football and here we are today. They're playing for arguably one of Spain's most historic, biggest clubs, Nathak Bilbao, and it's just a beautiful story. I what think. a story. Yeah, yeah. That, that is actually. Sometimes the backstory does inform the you know the attraction of the game uh, certainly for me in that respect what about for you Andy can you top that in terms of backstory I, d- I don't know if I can but France didn't let me down last weekend well on a personal level it did but <laughs> in terms of like giving the the listeners uh, something good to watch it didn't uh, Lyon 2 Lille 3 which was an amazing match mm. so exciting um, so you would have to say that is Lyon out of the title race however they need to come back and try and get themselves in the top three because we've said it all along there's going to be one really good team that misses out on the Champions League this season from that top four in France already cut themselves away uh, Lyon don't want it to be them but they've got to go and win at Monaco who are the most informed team in France to get themselves back in it Monaco a couple of points off the top, it could be their title. You know, you know, everyone's been focusing on Lille and Paris Saint-Germain, but Monaco have won five in a row without conceding a goal. And they're the second top scorers in the division. They've got so many different goal scoring threats as well. Um, ben Yedda, Jovetic fit again. Um, some terrific options. Um, and there's been a lot of... Um, a lot of recrimination at Lyon this week. So th- they need a a big performance. Well, recriminations because that. of the loss to Lille. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Like you said, it's a dramatic match. They they, they tried. They, they, they were 2-0 they were, they were up and um, had it in the palm of their hand and ended up losing 3-2. And um, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a poor second half performance from them. And um, yeah, Rudy Garcia, the coach who is not expected to be there next season, has got it in the neck quite a lot as well. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.